Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 Podcast, your weekly exploration of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters through the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. It's a bit of a twist on legacy as we stretch the the metaphorical elastic band of legacy and its definitions to its limits slightly. This week's episode prompted by the publication of issue 419 of Action Comics on the 26th of October 1972, the introduction of Christopher Chance, The Human Target. Created by Len Wein, because Julie Schwartz wanted to freshen up the rotating backup strips, so it wasn't just the Atom and Green Arrow. Peter, when did you first encounter the Human Target? I think it was in an issue of Brave and Bold. Remember it having a white cover? I think the Creeper was in it too. That's kind of the first time I remember seeing him anywhere, I believe. What about yourself? Snap. Just, ah, there we are. Yes, I think it was the first time I encountered the Creeper as well. Oh, right, okay. Ah, so bear that in mind for when, when we do that issue of Super Team Family. I'll come back to that. Pretty sure I got it from the, the paper shop in Johnson. It was across the road from my maternal grandparents. I remember asking my dad what a human target was, mm-hmm. imagining that the man would transform into one of those big red, yellow and blue things that you got in Target books and in Robin Hood's drawings. <laughs> so yeah, the human target, it's a bit of a stretch in legacy. He's introduced in Action Comics 419, and it's a very exciting story by Len Wein, Carmine, Dick Giordano. Um, it's called The Assassin Express Contract which puts me very much in mind of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Yes, episode yes. Naming Conceit. Uh-huh. It involves explosive action on a train and disguises and industrial espionage, and it's all very, very exciting. The basic gist of what the human target is all about, well, Peter's going to tell you that. Yeah, well, the idea behind him is he is a man for hire who, in much in the way of Mission Impossible, takes on the identity of people who are under threat of some sort of menace, be it assassination or... Their life is in danger. Yes, he literally becomes a human target, replacing them. Yeah, exactly. Because mm. like I say, that the story in Action 419, you see him with a sort of blonde beard and wig because of some big important man whose name I didn't write down, who's in danger and Christopher Chance takes over. It was weird. In doing our prep for this, we, we found out that he's not really been in that many stories over the years, but because I encountered him around at the same time as I was encountering pretty much everyone else, i.e. 1978, 79, mm-hmm. I just assumed he was really quite important <laughs> and had innumerable appearances, but not really. Yeah, he had less than 20 appearances yeah. pre-crisis, you know. And of course, so. there's also been, you know, some, been a few other bits and bobs post-crisis. Certainly has, yes. There's been a couple of fantastic miniseries written by Peter Milligan, which is great. Uh, they've been collected as well. There's been a few one-shots here and there. And of course, most recently, there's been the Tom King and Greg Smallwood series, which has been a really interesting take in the character. Of course, yeah. I mean, I've picked all those up. Everything else, I haven't read it. I've <laughs> picked it up mainly because the, the late 80s version of the Justice League was involved I wonder if Shag will do an episode on it when he gets to the end of GLI. Wahaha. He may well do. That would be interesting. Let us know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, there was also a couple of attempts to put the character on television. One with Rick Springfield, of all people, in 1992. And then uh, another live action series that started in 2010 that apparently ran for a whole 25 episodes over two seasons. I haven't seen any of them. With Mark Valley as Christopher Chance in that. But more interestingly, Jackie L. Haley was in every episode as well. And of course, he's better known to comic fans as the guy who played Rorschach in the Watchmen movie. Of course. Hey. Interesting. So, listeners, you're probably wondering what we're going to talk about if we've just given you all this stuff about the human target at the start and we said we're not going to do the story. 
in his infinite wisdom and his infinite search capacity, Peter discovered a long time ago that there were a few other stories and indeed characters who could be identified as human targets. So as we stretch legacy to the limit and just weeks after Peter has g- had given himself the mammoth <laughs> editing task of all yes. of those seven soldiers of victory stories, today we are delving back into the archives, the deep recesses of the coffin boxes and bringing you three stories from the 1950s. Indeed we are. All of which feature some human targets or other. The first of these we're going to cover for you is from Detective Comics 201, published on the 30th of September, 1953. Peter's going to tell you about the very exciting cover. We're inside a mansion, it looks like. There is a nasty bald thug bursting out of a grandfather clock, brandishing a weapon. He's trying to shoot someone. Batman's running in, fortunately, and he has a shield up that's deflecting the bullets. Robin's in the foreground watching the action, and the guy who is the target, the literal human target, of this assassination is looking shocked. And of course, at the top, we have the Detective Comics banner. Above that, it says, Also impossible, but true, a startling TV mystery series. I refer you back to a Roy Raymond episode for more information on that series. I want to do some more Roy Raymond stories, Peter. They were great fun. I'm just saying. And there's a caption at the side that says, Danger threatens Batman and Robin when they become bodyguards of the reckless man who made himself the human target. Yep. A fun, exciting and dense story, so we're going to jump straight in. Our opening splash panel shows Batman and Robin swinging in on ropes, and there's a very superheroic figure in the middle. White sort of unitard, minty flavoured trunks, I would sort of say, or maybe mm-hmm. weird licorice striped trunks, green and white, black stripes. Has a red cape, a black hood over his face, no visible features but a large question mark, and on his chest there's the symbol of a target. He's surrounded by bad guys of various design and stripy jumpers and braces and striped suits and hats, all firing guns at him. And a large caption reads, He was a man who laid his life on the line. A man who deliberately exposed himself to others' weapons of death. But he had a reason for doing it. A good reason. Leaving Batman and Robin no other choice but to protect him and allow him to continue his role of the human Human target. You know, I can't wait to see this new superhero in action. His costume looks incredible. I look forward to you sending me a photograph of your custom Funko. (laughs) (laughs) Of this guy. Mm. Um, No pressure. No pressure. Listeners, there was a time I kind of emotionally blackmailed Peter into doing one of Blockbuster a few years ago and he did it. So let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. It's a startling image. I wouldn't have been surprised to have seen this guy in the background of one of the Kingdom Come crowd scenes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh Very much so. Um, That would have been terrific. And honestly, if I'd been creative director at DC Direct in the early 2000s, instead of all those Superman and Batman variant figures that we got for a couple of years, we'd have had a figure of this guy. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It would have been Human Target Month at DC Direct. Anyway, we shall jump into the story. Caption for the first panel on page two. One evening in the Gotham City hotel suite of Prince Michael Gruyer, famed European statesman... It's going to be peak Peter announcement voice this week, listeners, and I tell you, I am for it. I am here 100% Arizona. Very large room, large windows in the background. We see the cityscape behind, deep curtains, big fancy painting on the wall, table with some stuff, nice fancy chair. Butler entails older man, balding, is holding his hands wide apart and saying, But your highness, it it is all arranged. The official reception is tomorrow. You'll parade in an open car from one end of the city to the other. Prince Michael looks very distressed and is saying, It's an invitation to death, I say. 
You saw the notes. Assassins will be waiting everywhere. I won't stand a chance. But there's the police and, and Batman and Robin who've been assigned to guard you. They'll fend off the terrorists who threatened you. I wonder. Even the great Batman can't be everywhere at once. But there's no use talking. I realise I must go through with the reception. I cannot be branded a coward. Just then, a stranger enters. A stranger who gives the prince the shock of his life. This is fantastic because I think for the first time in the podcast, if not for a very long time in the podcast, the prince's monocle pops out in surprise as he says, Why, it's, it's me. An exact double of me. Am I seeing things? Yes, and indeed the door is opened and we see another tall, slim man with neatly parted dark hair and a moustache who is indeed the double of the prince. The butler boggles as well and he says, Who are you? How did you get in here? To which the newcomer replies, Calm down, gentlemen. I'll explain in a moment. My name is Fred Venable. I used to be an impersonator. It was easy to get in here because everyone thought I was you, your highness. That answers your questions. Now, I'll tell you why I've come here. A slight change in angle here, as we see the newcomer Fred addressing the prince. Your life has been threatened, your highness. You've been warned not to tour the city in a car. So... Here's my proposition. I'll take your place in that car, run all the risks, for a sizable fee, of course. Uh, amazing, amazing, but what if someone should discover the hoax? Fred Venable takes a seat in the next panel, saying, Don't worry, no one has ever spotted an impersonation of mine. Well, what do you think? You can buy me a human target for $5,000. Prince Michael rubs his chin thoughtfully. Hmm, that's a lot of money, but then you're willing to risk your life. I think I will hire you, Mr. Venable, after I've checked with Batman and Robin. And a slow dissolve, top of page three, caption of the first panel reads. So later that evening, as word of the proposition reaches the famed crime fighters Batman and Robin in their secret bat cave. They've got the filing cabinet open. Robin's got a file out, he's looking at it and he's saying, According to our records, Batman, this Venable has no criminal record. And we found out why he needs big money so badly that he's willing to risk his life for it. His young daughter is severely crippled. Only a series of expensive operations can make her walk again. Interesting they've got records of a man who doesn't have any criminal... Do they have records on everyone? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Caption for panel two. Soon after, in Prince Michael's hotel suites. Yes. It's a nighttime view. The, the gorgeous, expansive rooftop balcony of Prince Michael's suite. The prince is there, so is his butler, so is Fred. Batman and Robin swinging in on lines from opposite directions. Oddly, Batman is saying, We've checked on Mr. Venable, Prince. His proposition appears to be illegitimate, though slightly bizarre. Good, then he's hired. I'll brief him on what to expect at that reception. Batman holds a hand to Fred in the next panel, saying, You're a brave man, sir. It's a shame this is the only way you can make the money you so sorely need. To which Fred says, I'm not complaining, Batman. It's worth the risks, and beside, the risk is lessened with you in my side. And a slow dissolve caption for panel four. And so it is that next day, as Gotham City turns out to welcome Prince Michael, an impersonator receives the ovation. Great shot. Batman and Robin on a rooftop looking down at the adoring crowds, a big long stretch limo bearing, open inverted commas, Prince Michael along. You can see police outriders and other cars surrounding it. Robin is saying, So far, so good. The crowd has accepted him as Prince Michael. 
and the police have checked all buildings on the route. If trouble's coming, it'll be from some other place. In the next moment... Robin observes. They're passing the television cameras now. Batman looks surprised and says, What? Come on, Robin, that's the answer. We must get down there fast. Next instant... Batman and Robin swing down on their lines towards the two men are standing on top of a truck, pointing their television cameras at the prince. Robin is saying, Why, those television cameras are fakes. They'd have shot bullets instead of pictures. But how did you know, Batman? I thought it funny when I noticed that the red lights that indicate a camera is turning weren't on. My hunch was right. And then in the first panel of page four, we see Batman and Robin basically getting stuck into the two guys that were stood on top of the truck with the cameras. Fantastic. That's what the kids want. Batman is saying, They must have hijacked the real television mobile unit and substituted their own, figuring they could commit the crime before the studio realised why it wasn't getting any reception. Fantastic. Worthy of Eric Sayward at his best. Caption for panel two. Next morning, in the home of socialite Bruce Wayne and his young ward Dick Grayson. The newspapers have obviously just arrived. Dick is reading a copy of the Gotham News that has the heading Assassination Plot Foiled. Batman and Robin nab it would-be murderers. Bruce Wayne is saying, A good day's work we did there, Dick, even though the real prince was safe and sound in his hotel. Yes, I'd sure have hated to see anything happen to Fred Venable. I'm rooting for him and his kid. At that moment... Now, they must be up very early, because it seems to be dark outside. Maybe this is an autumn or winter story. We can see something in the sky, to which Bruce says... "Uh Uh-oh, there's the bat signal. We're wanted at headquarters. Costumes are all ready, Bruce. Let's go. Swiftly, man and boy don their garb of Batman and Robin, and later, as they report to Police Commissioner Gordon... I like this panel. We can see Commissioner Gordon and some of his lads, his lads with their headphones on, plugged into various bits of machinery and stuff. They're obviously hard at it. Commissioner smoking a pipe is saying, Batman, Turk Vincent just broke out of the pen. We're alerting all units. Vincent? He's a dangerous killer. Yes. And if I know Vincent, the first thing he'll do is try to exact his revenge on Perry Davison, the famed curio collector whose testimony sent Vincent up. Then we'll go right over to Davison's. Come on, Robin. Caption of the final panel, page four. Soon after, in the curio-crowded home of Perry Davison, famed art collector... Perry Davison is sat at the front of the panel in a big fancy blue chair. He wears a nice patterned dressing gown. He's smoking a cigarette. We can see various interesting curios dotted around. There's a striped tiger skin rug, some fancy art deco lamps and a suit of armour. Robin, as he enters, says, Mr Davison, have you heard the news? Turk Vincent has broken out of jail. So I heard, over the radio. The announcer hazarded a guess that Vincent might come here seeking revenge. That's why I'm here, Batman. Batman looks astonished and says, That voice! Why, it isn't Davison's at all! You're Fred Venable, the human target! And indeed, the disguised Fred replies in the first panel of page five. Right, Batman. As soon as I heard the radio flash, I figured Davison would be a likely prospect for me. So, we concluded a deal five minutes ago. I'm to pose as him until Turk Vincent is captured. Wow, I guess you're one man who'll never have trouble finding work. Another slow dissolve. That evening, as Davison entertains a group of fellow art collectors... This is another fantastic panel showing all sorts of interesting works of art, like statues and there's an ornate fancy chess set, another big rug on the floor, lots of paintings, lots of men standing around in tails and bow ties and stuff. Batman and Robin standing next to a sarcophagus in a suit of armour 
Watching all this going on, Batman says, The police still haven't located Vincent, which means he may show up here yet. If he does, I sure hope we recognise him amidst all this clutter of curios. I've never seen such a strange collection. Just then... Davison says, Ah, the oversized grandfather's clock has arrived. Gentlemen, wait till you see this. It's kept perfect time for years. Yes, a couple of tailed figures, probably servants or butlers or whatever, are manhandling this enormous grandfather-style clock into position. Batman says, Funny, Robin. That clock isn't ticking at all. Why should a perfect clock suddenly stop working? And as the daring duo wearily advances upon the clock... Yes, there's a crash, basically the image on the cover now, as the front of the clock shatters as Turk Vincent bursts out, bearing a gun. Robin cries, Look out, Batman! It's Turk Vincent! No wonder the clock wasn't working. Vincent had jammed the pendulums with his body. He was planning a surprise attack. Turk Vincent lunges forward with his gun in the next panel, saying, I'll still get Davison! And you too, Batman! And he fires his gun. Batman has helpfully grabbed a shield from somewhere, brings it up in front of his face as he says, You weren't quick enough on the draw, Vincent. This shield saw service four centuries ago, and it's still as good as ever. Get him, Robin. Robin punches Vincent, who's an older-looking baldy chap in a striped suit, so that he goes flying backwards into a wooden sort of statue of some kind of native Indian-type figure. Batman watches this and says, Nice punch! Now Mr. Davison's collection has two wooden Indians. Too bad one of them has to return to jail. Gosh, it's all go. Well done. A slow dissolve takes us to the top of page six. And later that evening, at the home of Fred Venable... Fred is stood in front of a mirror, wiping away his face and thinking... That does it. The last of my makeup as Davison is removed. Now for some sleep. Being a human target is murder on the nerves. But before retiring, the worn-out man tiptoes into a room where a sleeping child awakens happily to the sound of his footsteps. Yes, this is this is Fred's daughter, young blonde girl, sat up in bed and she says, Daddy, were you working tonight? Mrs. Benson says you were very busy, but she wasn't sure at what. Mrs. Benson was so busy keeping house for me, I forgot to tell her about my work. I do impersonations, honey. I... Imitate other people. Daughter hugs him, the next panel, saying, Gosh, wait till I tell the other kids. My daddy's an actor. Actors are important people. And Fred looks very sad as he thinks. If she only knew and understood the kind of acting I have to do. But I don't mind because it's all for her sake. And in the next few weeks, desperate for money, Venable continues in his secret role as... The Human Target. This is a great panel. We see that Fred appears to be carrying out some kind of Mandrake the Magician or Zatara cosplay. We see him at stage door wearing top hat, tails, long red cape. We can see a poster on the wall beside him that says, Now playing, it looks like Moreno, world famous magician. And Fred contemplates his lot and thinks, Moreno's ex-partner claims Moreno cheated him and threatened death as revenge. So I've found myself another job, changing places with Moreno as soon as he comes off the stage. Interesting. We have another dissolved to caption for the next panel. First, Moreno the Magician. Next, Tom Baker, shipbuilder, threatened by a disgruntled employee. Tom Baker on the same page as we deal with someone called Davison. I'll leave you to make the obvious conclusions here, listeners. This is obviously decades before Legopolis Part 4. We see a ship in the harbour. There's a man hanging from a gurney on the rope down the side of the building, obviously giving the illusion that he's building the ship. 
and another man in a stripy jumper is firing at him from behind a nearby shed. Fred, in his guise as Tom Baker being fired upon, observes a couple of caped figures running to his rescue and thinks, Boy, that was close. Am I glad to see Batman and Robin? And another slow dissolve takes us to another caption for the final panel of page six. And still another dangerous masquerade for Venable, as Jim Lovitz, newspaper columnist with a host of enemies gunning for him. And this panel shows a large red car roaring literally past a man who's ducking out of its way trying to get onto the pavement safely. And this man in green is thinking, Either that driver was drunk or he was purposely trying to run me down. Thank goodness I've got nearly all the money I need. I can soon end this human target roll. And that takes us to the top of page seven. Meanwhile, in a crowded bar on the other side of town... A large burly figure in a striped suit and a hat has a handkerchief to his face as he says, (laughs) Don't come near me with them flowers, punk. I'm allergic. And i got enough troubles as it is. And we see that one of the waiters in this crowded bar is indeed bearing some flowers in a vase on a plate in front of him. A man in a purple suit, purple hat, at another table observes all this and says, Troubles is right. I wouldn't be in blinky grow shoes for all the dough in Fort Knox. To which his pal at the table says, Why? What gives? Kind of purple exhales from his cigarette in panel two and continues, Ain't you heard? The syndicate put the finger on him for muscling in where he shouldn't have. They say there's two gunzels coming from Chicago to rub out Blinky. But good. Then why don't he hightail it out? What's he hanging around for? You don't run out on the syndicate, buddy. They get you wherever you go. Blinky knows it. Once you're marked, you're marked. I like this because the details of some smoke rings coming from his cigar. That's pretty cool. You. The caption in for panel four reads... Shortly, as gangster Blinky Grove elbows his way out of the cafe... We see someone standing at the bar, dressed very much like, I don't know, Mandrake the Magician or Satara, perhaps. And of course, this is Moreno the Magician. And he's saying to a chap in purple, It's no gag, I swear it. This guy took my place, see? He became me, Moreno the Magician, and sweated out the attack on my life. He does it for a living. Calls himself the human target. And as Blinky is making his way past, he overhears this and thinks, Hey, I've got to find out more about this. A moment later, as Blinky drags Moreno outside the bar... Yes, Blinky has got Moreno by the lapels of his jacket. It looks like he's been slapping him about, actually. Blinky is saying, Talk, punk. Tell me about this human target character, or you'll never tell anybody anything again. (laughs) All right, I'll talk. I'll tell you about him. And when the frightened magician has revealed all... We see Moreno sat on the floor in the final panel of page 7. Close up of Blinky, what a hideous looking figure with his narrow eyes and lined face. Cigarette in his gob as he thinks... Fred Venable, huh? (laughs) He's going to have a new assignment he don't know about yet. He's going to become Blinky Grove. Get me off the hook. A slow dissolve, listeners. We arrive at the top of page 8. Next evening, as Fred Venable returns home... Fred looking very jolly, got a hat on, he's got a pipe in his mouth, a nice very smart blue jacket, his arms are full of packages, he's opening the door to his apartment and he's thinking, A great night, I've made the money I need and tonight we celebrate with a party for Marianne. Batman and Robin promised they'd come. However, the caption for panel two reads, But next instant... Yep, as Fred enters his apartment, Fred drops his parcels in surprise because he's been greeted by Blinky, Grove and a couple of his bad guy associates. Fred says, What? What is this? Who are you? Blinky replies, 
Never mind, Venable. You're coming with us. I got a little assignment for you, and you better do it, if you ever want to see your kid again. Caption for panel three reads, Soon after... We're in a car, Blinky and Fred in the back seat. Fred looks very uncomfortable, looks like he's sweating. Blinky is saying, What's the matter, Venable? It's your racket, ain't it? Standing in for people in the spot. I just want to hire you, that's all. I'm on the spot, see? How can I refuse when you're holding my daughter as hostage? But I warn you, if you harm her in any way, I'll kill you with my bare hands. Another slow dissolve. In the meantime... We see the open door of Fred's apartment, which appears actually to have opened on a different side than it did two panels earlier. The parcels are all still lying on the floor. Batman and Robin are there. They're checking the place out, trying to figure out what's going on. Robin enters the living room saying, I I don't understand, Batman. The girl's gone too, and the room is a mess. Looks like there's been some dirty work here. Yes, Venable was all set to have his party, but... Something interfered, and that something is what we've got to find out as soon as possible. Dirty Work, of course, being the name of that terrible 1980s Rolling Stones album. If that's what's going on, it must be awful. Mm-hmm. Caption for panel 5, page 8. Later at Blinky Grove's hideout. We see that Fred is now in disguise as Blinky. He's wearing the striped suit that we've seen Blinky in. He looks a little bit thicker, as if he's maybe wearing some padding. Blinky's wearing a very attractive green dressing gown, and he's holding a gun out towards Fred, saying, See? You look fine. Now, tomorrow you start hanging around the Green Angel Club, like I usually do. Here's a gat so you can shoot it out in case the syndicate boys turn up. And one of Blinky's goons standing behind Fred says, And remember, Venable, no tricks, no funny stuff, no calling in the law. Just remember, we hold your kid. Presently, after Venable departs... Blinky, looking very suave indeed, is pouring himself a drink as his pal says, But how long are you going to lay low, boss? You know them syndicate guys. They could take weeks to do a job. Maybe in the meantime, someone would get hep to the trick. Think I'm a sap? We knock off Venable tomorrow night, where people can see it happen. That makes me dead and gets a syndicate off my neck. I head for Mexico, and nobody's the wiser. Caption then for the first panel of page nine. But at police headquarters the following afternoon... Lot chairs laid out, few uniformed officers. We can see what looks like a movie project in the background. Commissioner Gordon, dressed in black, here. And there's another senior officer, all dressed in green. Commissioner Gordon is saying, Batman, we've got some film here you'll want to see. It was taken this morning, just developed and printed by Detective Barnes. It is my idea, Batman, to keep the notorious Green Angel Club under surveillance. The film has picked up some interesting characters entering and leaving. Ah, so that's... Obviously, Detective Barnes, then, in relation to Bucky. Leave it up to Roy Thomas to figure that out. Caption for panel two. And as the secretly filmed movie flashes on. Yes, we see that outside of the Green Angel Club, one of those nice big fancy awnings and lots of people moving around, a large fancy car. Batman and Robin and the police all watching this stuff on the screen. And Detective Barnes is saying, See, Commissioner, that little guy buying the flower, for instance. He's Midget Matson, the pickpocket. Yes, but unfortunately, Matson's clear right now. We haven't enough evidence to bring him in. Image on the screen changes, and Commissioner Gordon observes, Ah, now there's a man I'd like to ask some questions. Blinky Groves. Bring him in, boys. And on the screen we see Blinky. Is it Blinky? Buying some flowers from a young lady. And we can see the green, another different Green Angel sign behind. Batman says, Wait a minute, Commissioner. That man can't be Blinky Groves. Blinky Groves is violently allergic to flowers, but... This man even sniffs them without any ill effects. It's worth investigating because 
I've an idea who that man might be. Of course. We remember Blinky was really annoyed at the, the busboy with the flowers in that earlier scene in the bar. And we see this close-up on the screen of Blinky sniffing out a rose. Batman and Robin made their exit as Commissioner Gordon, wide-eyed, says, He certainly looks like Blinky, but... And a slow dissolve, a shot of the Batmobile speeding through the, the streets is captioned. Later! And from inside we hear Robin's voice saying, If Venable's mixed up with Blinky, chances are it's because Blinky's holding his daughter. Best not barge right in on him. It might put the girl in danger. Good thought, Robin. We'll try to get him alone. And a caption for the final panel of page nine. So early that evening, as Fred Venable, disguised as Blinky Grove, steps out of the Green Angel Club for a breath of air... Batman grabs him, drags him into an alleyway, and Blinky exclaims... Batman and Robin, am I glad to see you? To which Batman thinks... I was right, he is Venable. Now to find out what's cooking. And the caption for the first panel of page ten reads... Quickly, Venable tells of his plight, and just as quickly, Batman makes his decision. Yes, Fred, still in his excellent disguise as Blinky, listens as Batman says, You've run enough risks, Venable, so I'm going to take your place. I'll become Blinky Grove and kill two birds with one stone. I'll get him and a syndicate too. But what of my daughter, Batman? We'll get your daughter, Venable. Robin, Blinky used to have a hideout on Harding Island. Check it. I've a hunch Marianne's being held there. Right, Batman. I'll keep in contact with you over the belt radios. Venable, you better get home and lie low. Leave everything to us. Thus, a little later, when Batman has donned the disguise of Blinky Grove... I'm going dizzy listeners from all these different Blinky Groves floating about. We see what again looks like Blinky, but it's partly not. Walking along the street, thinking... Blinky asked Venable to report to the Devil's Grotto tonight. I'll... Play along for the time being. The Devil's Grotto, of course, was where menswear played one of their first gigs in 1994. Or was it? Caption for panel four. Meanwhile, at the Devil's Grotto, fabulous marine exhibits in the Gotham City Amusement Park. Yes, the Devil's Grotto. Hopefully there'll be room to put this panel on the socials. I'm going to lower my glasses so I can look at it properly. Looks like a big, vast cave that's been hollowed out and... Lights have been strung from the ceiling. There's lots of signs all over the place that say the Devil's Grotto or stairs to Grotto. There's a man at a podium where you can buy tickets to the Devil's Grotto. Next to him, there's a sign with a little cartoon devil at the top of it that reads, The Devil's Grotto, filled with man-eating sharks. Gosh, get the thrill of your life. Walk over the bridge, you'll be within six feet of these monsters. Feed them, take snapshots, stay as long as you like, 50 cents admission. This is quite funny because I went to see the Meg 2 last night, so all this talk <laughs> of sharks is brilliant. Peter, can we go to the Devil's Grotto after we finish recording? It looks great. I want to see some man-eating sharks. Sure. You're buying. Cool. Do you remember that Kenny Everett sketch at a public sort of swimming pool and Cleo Rocco's bumps in and says, excuse me, handsome lifeguard, and Kenny says, yes, what is it, voluptuous swimmer? And she points and she says, there's a man-eating fish in the water. And it cuts to a man sat at a table. <laughs> knife and fork eating some fish from a plate terrible ah the classics puts me in mind of this anyway there's a lot going on in this panel a couple of figures are hidden it seems in the rocks up above the bridge which leads over the sort of the big pool that these sharks are in it's Blinky and his pal Blinky's pal says we're all set Blinky the dynamite's under the bridge wired and ready great I've already tipped off a reporter that uh, uh, Blinky Grove would be here tonight when Venable gets on that bridge, blow it up. And then we get a nice, and I say nice in the loosest possible terms because he's a grotesque looking figure. Nice shot of Blinky in the inset panel, still smoking a cigarette as he says, 
The reporter will see Blinky blasted into the water, and I won't have to worry about fingerprint identification, because those sharks will take care of the rest. The world will believe I'm dead. <laughs> and soon after, as the disguised Batman arrives... Yes, it's a nice shift in point of view here. We're sort of down at the side of the lagoon, for want of a better way of putting it. Kraken shot the shark fins poking out of the water. Blinky and his pal, hiding, holding on to a big detonator, and we see the disguised Batman who's come down the stairs walking towards the bridge. Blinky says, Here he comes. Get ready. And Batman in disguise is thinking, Venable's orders were to walk to the middle of the bridge and wait for someone to accost him. Hmm. Something funny about this. And the caption for the first panel on page 11 reads, Abruptly, the alert lawman's sharp eyes spot the wire running along the bridge. Yes, we can see the wire running along just underneath the bridge. We can still see lots of sharks floating about in, in the pool. Batman in disguise thinks, Great Scott, there's a wire under the bridge leading to an explosive charge. A booby trap, part of Blinky Grove's double cross. He looks up above in panel two, page 11, thinking, What'll I do? If I disobey orders and don't go on the bridge, I may jeopardise Venable's daughter. What a spot! Unless... Wait a minute... Those ropes controlling the Klieg lights give me an idea. Yes, we see the, indeed the rope stretching up to the, the lights that are mounted up in the ceiling. The caption for panel three. Suddenly, lurching as though he tripped, Batman brushes against the ropes, loosening them. And, in a moment, the battery of lights comes crashing down. Yes, very helpful CBC caption. The battery of lights does come crashing down, past the bridge, into the water. Hope none of the sharks were hurt. From the bridge, Batman thinks, Just as I hoped, that splash has drenched the explosives, rendering them useless. You see all sorts of water being thrown up, and presumably the explosives that have been lined have been soaked. Blinky and his pal are down watching as Blinky's pal says, Boss, look, the bridge will never blow up now on account of that water. Of all the tough breaks, come on, let's get out of here. Meanwhile, what of Robin, as he searches for Venable's daughter on Blinky Grove's island hideout? Blinky Grove's Island Hideout was a, an ITV Saturday morning programme in the mid-90s that menswear appeared on to promote being brave. Peter looks unimpressed, listeners, and frankly, I can't blame him. We see Robin doing some investigating at the foot of our structure, and he's thinking, The old lighthouse. And sure enough, there are Blinky's men and the girl. Now to climb in a tower and take them by surprise. Seconds later, inside... Yeah, Robin must have climbed into <laughs> and through a window or something, because <laughs> he's dropping from above, landing on two of the bad guys. As Marianne looks on, Marianne says, Ooh, it's Robin, just like in the movies, coming in the nick of time. One of the bad guys yells, Robin! And another cries, Oof! As Robin descends, taking him out, Robin is saying, Okay, boys, this is on the house. Lighthouse, that is. Oh, awful. And the caption for the final panel of page 11. And when the boy wonder radios Batman the news, the wheels of the law slip into high gear. Commissioner Gordon is saying to Batman, All right, Batman, we've done as you asked. We've picked up Blinky and his men in a secret raid and we'll hold the news from the press. Now what? Now I resume my identity as Blinky Grove. There's still the syndicate, remember? I'm baiting the trap by becoming another human target. And... When the syndicate comes to get me, I hope to get them. Gosh, we arrive at the top of page 12. So, a few days later, as Batman haunts the underworld in his role of Blinky Grove... Blinky Grove, of course, was the Riverside studio where lots of early episodes of Doctor Who were recorded in the, the 1960s. 
Blinky looks grotesque, as usual. Cigarette in his mouth, as usual. But of course, it's Batman in disguise. I hope Batman isn't smoking real cigarettes, Peter. That'd be terrible, wouldn't mm-hmm. it? And there's a car behind them, we can see. It's coloured blue, but he says, Hmm, that green sedan. It's been tailing me for two blocks, and now it's picking up speed. This could be it. I'll duck and come up behind it. Caption for panel two. But at that instant, fate deals an unexpected blow. Yes, in the foreground of the panel, we see a child playing with a ball running onto the road in front of the car. Blinky, a.k.a. Batman, moves forward saying, That child running into the car's path. He'll be killed. I've got to push him out of the way. And from inside the car, we see one guy leading out with a gun as if to shoot at Blinky, but the driver says, There he is, Red. Blinky Grove himself, delivered on a silver platter. Let him have it. And then the caption for panel three reads, All at once, a stunning turn of events. Blinky, a.k.a. Batman in disguise, has grabbed the child, holding him tight as he falls to the ground. The bad guy with the gun has got out of the car, as if to try and finish him off, but he notices a familiar silhouette on a rooftop behind him. He turns and says, Never mind Blinky Red, there's Batman. Let's get him. Shoot him down. Hurry. Fires his gun with a bang. The reactive Batman on the ground thinks, What in the world? The caption for panel four reads, Taking advantage of the unexpected diversion, the real Batman sails into the killers. Yes, Batman, in his disguise as Blinky, this is just as confusing for you listeners as it is for me, leaps forward, bashing the bad guys in the car's head together, saying, What a pushover this turned out to be. There's a great crunch sound effect as he smacks them together, and one guy goes, Oof! Another goes, Oof! The caption for the next panel. And moments later, on the rooftop where Batman appeared... Batman, in his blinky disguise, is attending to what looks like Batman, who appears to have been shot in the arm. Cradling him, takes his mask off and says, Why, it's Venable, again! And you're wounded! What were you doing here? Playing the human target, Batman, this time for you. You did so much for me, I, I had to repay you. So, I bought a Batman costume and followed you around. When I diverted those crooks, it was worth catching a slug in the shoulder, if it saved your life. Gosh, how brave of Fred. Caption for the next panel. So next day at police headquarters... Commissioner Gordon is talking to Batman and Robin. Those syndicate toughs broke down, Batman. Told us all we want to know. The hospital report in Venable is very good. He leaves there tomorrow. Boy, Robin and I are sure happy to hear that. And another slow dissolve takes us to the final caption for the final panel. And a week later, on a ship preparing to leave Gotham Harbour... Yes, we see Fred... Smoking, which is a horrible habit, and I'm appalled at how many characters were doing it in this story. And his daughter Marianne, waving to Batman and Robin, her down in the docks as the ship starts to leave. Fred is saying, Goodbye, Batman, and thanks for everything. I'll write you from Switzerland as soon as the operations of Marianne are finished. To which Batman replies, Bon voyage! And don't worry, I know those operations will be a success. It couldn't turn out any other way. Batman and Robin wave them off as a tiny caption reads, the end. That wasn't bad. A human target. A human target. Literally labelling himself as the human target. A master of disguise. Yes. Impersonating other people. Yes. Some of whom are in danger. In 1953. Yes. Wow. A long time before Christopher Chance ever rocked up. 20 years, roughly. Hmm. Pretty cool. Not bad. I wonder if Len read it. Well, yeah, it's a possibility. We'll ponder that later on as well, because I have a theory. Of course you do. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Quite dense, but very fast moving at the same time. I liked it a lot. I really loved it when uh, Fred got into that amazing superhero costume and started fighting crime in it with his uh, <laughs> mint trunks and his white costume and his hood with the question mark on it and red cape. A real shame that that costume <laughs> didn't appear properly in the story. That's not the first time that's happened. We've had, I can't 
can't remember what other story it was, but there's another yeah, so story that had an image of a, a figure, but it was yeah, not actually the uh, it, it does feel familiar. Listeners, if you can think what we're thinking of, let us know, because we can't remember. Yes. <laughs> we're getting old. The thing I always say, reading these old stories, is nowadays this could be a four-issue miniseries. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. In fact, you know, possibly one of those Human Target miniseries was actually based on something like this. <laughs> could well be. Probably. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've got any of the other... I think I might have the first Vertigo miniseries. Mm. One of those many miniseries from the 90s and 2000s that I bought and never read. You know, I, I dug out mm. Guns of the Dragon to read months ago because someone on Twitter had said something about it and I still haven't read it. Oh, well. What can you do? It was fun. Batman doing lots of cool things like being in disguise and a massive interesting supporting cast and lots of changes of scene and lots of proper Batman stuff like a a pool full of sharks and yes you know and enormous grandfather clocks and that's it. characters called davison and tom baker on the same page <laughs> there's another tom baker right about this time actually an issue of jimmy olsen uh-huh. who turns out to a boy from candor in disguise should we do a doctor who related episode at some point i think what given that doctor who's 60th anniversary is fast approaching yes yes let's have a think about that as if mm. we haven't already decided what we're going to do already yeah Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned, listeners. Yeah, I really liked it. I mean, if you were to sort of do a account of how many panels Batman and Robin were actually in, mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the ending when they go off to Switzerland or Sweden or wherever it was, yeah. it could almost be a backdoor pilot for a human target series in a way, almost. Definitely, yeah. I mean, Fred is the star. He's mm-hmm. the star all the way through, right up until the very end where, you know, Batman switches places with him and then it becomes a Batman story. Yeah. But before that, it's Fred's story and it's great. It's really entertaining. It's genuinely quite exciting. He's got good motivation as well, mm, which mm. is good. And again, let's point out, Bruce Wayne could have just said, I'll pay for your daughter's operation. Do you know what? I hadn't even thought of that until he said it. That's right. <laughs> it's like this guy who's like literally risking his life on a daily basis. Bruce is just going, oh, this is good. This yeah. is taking the pressure off me. Especially the way Batman says at the end, I know those operations will be a success. As if he knows 100% how? What? Has he recommended the, yeah. the clinic or something? That, yeah, that's, maybe, that's an excellent maybe. point. Mm. You know, it was, this story reminded me of the whole feel of it. It reminded me of the Darwin Cook adaptations of the Parker novels for some reason. Yeah. yeah. I think it's probably just the period it was set in because we haven't really mm-hmm. read many stories from from this period mm-hmm. you know the gangsters and the background of the gangsters and yeah and such like and the, the cd bars and stuff and the mm-hmm. the the very down-to-earth stakes of this girl not being well and her dad trying to raise the money for it yeah it wasn't very superhero-y it was very definitely yeah crimey I mean, and mm-hmm. very i'm not gonna say noirish but you know uh-huh. it, it didn't feel like a superhero story no I, yeah i know exactly what you mean funnily enough the most recent human target series with greg smallwood's art it completely reminds me of darwin cook's marker Interesting. Just the stylistic choices. It looks it looks very retro fifties. A lot of it, right? Certainly in the portrayal of Christopher Chance, mm-hmm. it does have that vibe. To it. it's, it's nothing like his artwork, mm-hmm. but it just has that flavour, just that feel. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I've, I think I read issue one or flight through issue one, and mm-hmm. it, it definitely, you know, it had that fifth, late fifties, early sixties sort of Carmine sort of yeah. feel to it. You know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which obviously is what Darren was echoing when he was doing New Frontier, mm-hmm. and obviously that was very much his style, which yeah. obviously it, it leads us to the Parker books, mm-hmm. obviously. No, it was very interesting. Very different to the... We haven't done many Batman stories, no. of course, but very different. Yeah, I'm glad it had a happy ending. Yes, for everyone. That was yeah, great, apart from, much. Apart uh, from poor Blinky. Blinky. Poor Blinky. He was oh, well. horrible. Horrible. Where do we last actually see Blinky in the story? Uh, second last page. Right, when he runs away from the, 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 the grotto, from the Devil's Grotto. Yep. Where did those sharks come from? Where did they get, how did they get those sharks into this underground cavern in Gotham? They went to the pet shop. I suppose. Yes. Obvious. I should have thought of that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Anyway, shall we move on to our second story? Yes, the beaches are open and everyone's having a good time. Yes, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the Devil's Grotto. Our second story comes from 
issue 26 of House of Mystery, published on the 10th of March 1954. And Peter's going to tell you about the cover. It's a very striking cover, literally. We have the House of Mystery logo at the top. We have a knife-throwing act. It's very exciting. There's a man in a tight spandexy costume up against a wall uh, with knives sticking out all around him. He seems to have a heart logo over his uh, left breast. And there is another man who is throwing knives at him. Uh, he has kind of Harry Osborne like here, and he also has the tight costume. He's, this time he's got a green triangle inverted on his chest. In front of him is a box labelled The Great Carl, from which three knives are sticking out. And just as he's about to throw his next knife, there is a hand grabbing him from some creepy spectral figure. And this spectral figure is saying, Wait, Carl, are you going to murder him as you murdered me? And at the bottom we have a caption that tells us the stories in this issue, saying, Featuring the human target, also the man with magic ears, ship from the past, and dress of doom. I do like this cover. The yellow and purple of the logo in the background really pops. These two knife-throwing guys remind me a lot of, is it Ace and Dart, I think, the old British superhero characters? I'm not familiar. They featured in Zenith in 2008, briefly. Oh, well, that's why I'm not familiar. Uh, but they were old ones from the 50s. Uh, right. But yes, they remind me a lot of those. But there we are. Okay. Well, into the story. The story is narrated in the first person by Carl, the knife-thrower on the cover. And he begins his narration. He stood there before my target, grinning, taunting me. But though the power of murder was in my knives, I was helpless to harm him. For Henri Dupree had come back, and I knew that no power on earth could hope to slay... The, the Human, human targets. targets. Yes, we're on stage. We see the box with the great Carl written on it. Knives poking out. Carl, who was the knife thrown on the cover, now wearing a full green unitard with sort of an orangey-yellow inverted triangle on his chest. Another man in blue with a red heart symbol over his, the left part of his chest is against the board. Knives have been thrown into the board. And the attractive young lady, dark hair, in a red bathing style outfit, is moving forward to, to try and calm Carl, who is saying... I see you, Henri. You can't fool me. It's you there at the target board. Come back to haunt me. No, no, Carl. There's nobody there but Peter. You're imagining things. And she's saying this because a large ghostly figure appears to be emanating out of the board above Peter. Gosh, Jean can't see him, but Carl can. And at the bottom of the panel, there's a small caption box telling us that this story is drawn by Ruben Moria, the guy who also did the Roy Raymond stories that we covered a while back. Awesome. Check out that episode if you haven't already, folks. Yes. It's a lot of fun to do. Want to do some more Roy Raymond. Right. As we say, Carl narrates this story and his caption for the next panel reads, Gene and I were a success. Our marksmanship act was fast becoming a smash hit. Yes. See Carl on stage. Balanced upside down with his head in a cushion, firing his gun at Gene, who's attached to a board surrounded by balloons. So he's firing the gun and busting the balloons. A man in the crowd cries, Remarkable! Such precision! Another voice says, Bravo! So resolve Carl's caption for panel three. Everywhere we performed, it was the same story. Gene's beauty and my skill were an unbeatable combination. Gene is on a rotating board. Carlos throwing knives at her. The trick obviously being that he's hitting the board and not hitting her. A man in the crowd observes to his companions. Sensational. How does she dare risk her life so? Such a beauty she is. They say the two are in love. Carl narrates the first panel of page two. The crowd was only half right. I did love Jean, but alas, she was not ready to accept my hand. See, Jean sat at her dressing table. See some makeup and stuff in front of her. She's a mirror and it's surrounded by those little light bulbs that you often see in actors' dressing rooms in old films. Carl is saying, Jean, my darling, 
We have everything to live for. Let us be married and complete our success. Carl, you know how fond I am of you, but as yet I do not feel love. Perhaps some day. She stands in panel two, saying, And now I must hurt you even deeper, dear Carl. You see, I cannot continue the act. What? Great thunder, Jean, what has happened? Why do you tell me this terrible thing? She leans into Hogum in panel three, saying, Each performance I become more and more frightened, Carl. There is no denying it. My nerves are cracking. Carl, you must find a new girl. A very serious-faced Carl replies. So, my own skill is destroying the thing I love. No, Jean, there shall be no new girl. You will remain part of the act, but another person shall play the targets. Thus, it all began. And when, a week later, I learned of another pair that was splitting up, I hastened to enlist one of them. Yes, we see Carl and Jean and this newcomer in a very fancy-looking cafe. There's a conspicuous, curly-haired, balding, mustachioed, bow-tied figure in the foreground. I guess he's just one of the waiting staff. Looks a bit like Alfred the Butler, though, doesn't he? He does, actually. Yeah. Maybe he is. Mm. With a mohawk. Carl is saying, I understand that you Dupree brothers have had a great career in the circus. Now that you've split up, perhaps either you, Henri, or your brother might join our act. This newcomer replies, My brother is leaving show business to return home, Mr. Lang, but I will welcome the job. So, Henri Dupree came to our act, and he was an instant success. And this panel, point of view of the crowd in the theatre, as we see Carl and Jean and Henri on stage, Henri attached to a big red and white target, as Jean is saying, Now, the remarkable Lang will throw twelve knives at his fearless partner, Henri Dupree. And as Carl starts to throw the knives in the next panel, he thinks, He has nerves of steel. With Jean acting as assistant, our act will be better than ever. And someone in the crowd observes and cries, Wonderful! Wonderful! A very serious-faced-looking Carl thoughtfully narrates the next panel. Such a fool I was. For scarcely a week had passed when I discovered the evil that Henri had brought into my life. Yes, because we see Henri and Jean leaving together through the exit, as Carl thinks, Jean is happy with him. Never has she been so light-hearted and carefree with me. What have I done? Can she be falling in love? And Carl's narration for the first panel of page three reads, Before the month was out, there was no denying my fears. And finally, one evening after the show... Yes, we see Carl observing the silhouetted figures of Henri and Jean kissing backstage. We see ropes and curtains hanging around. Very authentic. Carl thinks, The swine! I will soon rid myself of this dog! And his caption for panel two... That evening... I made my plans. It would be simple, oh so simple, to wipe out my rival. And a very moody Carl, with heavy lines on his forehead and round his brows, is thinking. It'll take but one false movement of my hand. Though, I must be careful. Each of us is insured for twenty thousand dollars. The money will enable me to leave show business. Jean and I can open a business. I have only to await the right moment. Shortly afterward, we signed a contract to appear in Paris, France. The time was right. We see Carl and Jean, and presumably Henri, it's not too clear, surrounded by some reporters. We can tell the reporters because they're wearing big hats and they have Macs and they're all carrying notepads. One of them is saying, Monsieur Lang, if we take pictures of your daring performance this evening, will the flashbulbs disturb you? Carl thinks, Picture, flashbulbs, ah, that's my solution. Then he says, Don't be a fool. My work requires complete concentration. An exploding flashbulb might cause an accident. Carl's narration for the next panel, though. But just before the opening, I made a phone call. We see a very moody shot of Carl in a box that's labelled 
Telephone Publique. A full moon looms in the background as we hear him saying, Yes, yes, rest assured that you have my permission to take pictures. And he thinks, As if the police will believe you afterwards. <laughs> yes, we can tell it's France because there's a hint of cobbled streets and a sign that says the Rue Saint something or other number 1400. The caption for panel five. And within the hour, I was ready to commit the perfect murder. Yes, we're back on stage with Jean and Henri and Carl. Jean in a red, Henri in blue against the board, Carl in green, holding a knife in his right hand and his left hand he's holding a mirror so he can see behind him. Jean is saying, Ladies and gentlemen, the remarkable Lang will now perform for the first time a backhanded knife thrown toward a revolving living target. Carl thinks, The stage is set. And it merely reduced my timing by half a second. The drums rolled, silence fell over the hall, and my first knife split the air. Carl's first knife is thrown, strikes the board, cries from the audience of Ooh, ah. Carl thinks Any moment now and is captioned for the final panel of page three. Then, as my hand poised for the second toss, the stage was suddenly illuminated in a blast of light. There's a pop as a flashbulb goes off. Carl is distracted. He cries, What? Jean exclaims, Oh! The caption for first panel of page four reads, Abruptly, Carl has dropped to the floor. The knife has left his hand. is flying towards Henri. Carl exclaims, No, no, it isn't right. That that flash, it threw my timing off. And then there's a, Ah! From Henri in panel two as the knife strikes and we don't see where it strikes and it doesn't look pleasant. Carl says, Oh! Henri! Eek! Exclaims Jean. The caption for panel three reads, As usual, my aim was perfect. Henri was dead, and I played the greatest performance of my career. You see that Henri has been unstuck from the board, is lying on the, the stage floor. Jean is distraught, she says, He's dead! Oh, Henri! Henri! Carl kneels down to examine the body, saying, The fools! I warned them not to take pictures! And the portly, spectacled theatre manager is on stage, yelling to, Ring down the curtain! A slow dissolve. Carl's caption for panel four. Afterward, as the press grieved with us. Yes, the reporters are back. You can tell the reporters because they're wearing big hats and one guy's got a little ticket stuck into the band of his hat and he's saying, the photographer was some young unemployed fool. He claims that your dead partner gave him permission by telephone. Please, monsieur, do not blame the Paris press for this. Go. Leave us alone in our sorrow. A slow dissolve. Carl's caption for panel five. A full month passed before Jean got over the shock. But it was I who received the final shock the day I told her my plan to retire. We see Carl and Jean, and there's another chap in a bow tie, thinning curly hair. Carl is saying, What? You want to continue the act? With another assistant? But Jean, I was prepared to quit show business. No, Carl. Henri would not want us to quit because of an accident. Please, I want you to meet a fine performer, Peter Keith. Peter Keith speaks in the next panel, saying, Yes, Mr. Lang, I wish to replace Henri Dupree in your ill-fated act. Such a tragedy cannot possibly happen again. Very well. If Jean has the courage to continue, so do I. And Carl runs out this panel with some more narration. That was how Peter Keith came into my life, bringing with him horrors beyond the wildest imagination. Peter Keith. Never trust anyone with two first names. That's what I always say. Carl's narration for the final panel on page four. For on our opening night in London, I already began to sense something strange in my new assistant. Peter is attached to a board. The balloons are there. Carl is firing, bursting the balloons with the gun. And as he does so, he thinks, Odd. There is something familiar about that man, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And we arrive at the top of page five. Carl's narration continues. 
It wasn't until three nights later, right in the middle of our act, that I suddenly realised what bothered me about Peter. As Jean looks on and we see Peter attached to the board, Carl pauses with his knife in his hand. And he's thinking, Those eyes? Good grief, strange that I didn't notice it before. They're exactly like Henri's eyes. The caption for panel two. From then on, my sleep became black hours of torment, with visions of a dead man constantly awakening me from my slumber. It's a very moody shot, which might well end up in the socials of Carl sitting up in bed, and there's a ghostly image of Henri looming through the window, staring at him wide-eyed and smiling. Carl exclaims, Hey, Henri, he's standing there! A very moody nighttime shot of Carl in the next panel as he thinks. Must get control of myself. It, it's all in my mind, just my imagination. But if someone should hear me... The days passed, and each performance became a nightmare too. We're on stage with everyone, lights shining down. Peter on the board, Carl looking at him as Jean introduces. Ladies and gentlemen, the remarkable Lang! Carl's thinking as he looks at Peter. Now his ears and chin are also identical to Henri's. Am I going mad? His narration for the next panel. I fought to control my shattered nerves, for another accident could give me away. Yes, it's the balloon act again. Peter's pinned to the board. Jean is watching as Carl has his pistol and Carl's thinking. It, it, it must be in my mind. It has to be. Otherwise, Jean would also notice the resemblance. Steady. Steady, Carl. And another slow dissolve. Another caption to round out page five. That night, I returned to my rooms, white and shaken. What fiendish power from the grave was twisting my mind? Carl has gone into his medicine cabinet, he's opened a little tub, and he's saying, I, I must take a pill. But then he screams, Hey! Because another figure dressed in black has appeared in his room, saying, You can't fight me, Carl. You will always see my death face before you. Ha ha ha! Top of page six, Carl's caption for the first panel, I fled into the night, the ghastly spectre howling behind me. Terrific detail in the background here as we see Carl running through the street, looking back at this ghostly image which is pursuing him. Carl saying, No, no, get away from me. You're not real. You're just in my mind. You'll never escape me, Carl. No matter where you go, I'll be waiting. You're doomed to view my face forever. The next evening was to be our last performance of the season, and he'd only last through this one final show... And I could retire. Yep. Jean and Carl backstage. Jean is saying, All ready, Carl. Peter is in his position at the knife target. Let's make our last performance a good one. Yes, yes, Jean. And he thinks, What will he look like tonight? How much more of Henri will I see in his face? I walked to my tossing position, fighting back the panic that filled my chest. Yes. More deep lines on Carl's face as he thinks, just one more night, one more, and I'll leave this accursed stage forever. Panel four, we see Carl on stage, Peter in the blue costume with the red heart symbol over his chest. We see the detailing of the, the balcony and the circle and all such things. Carl narrates, Suddenly, as I raised my hand to aim, I saw him. No more was he a growing shadow of the man I killed. Peter was Henri himself. It almost looks so. Henri stroke Peter is moving towards him. Carl drops his knife, exclaiming, Yeah, he, he has come back to haunt me. In the next panel, Carl hurls a knife towards Peter, saying, y You monster! I killed you once and I'll kill you again! But Peter ducks out of the way. And a very handy London Bobby is standing at the side of the stage who exclaims, He's gone daft! Let's collar him! And Carl's narration for the next panel, All at once... Peter's triumphant voice reached my ears, 
and the stage began swimming before my eyes. With an ooh, Carl collapses, face down on the stage, and we see in the foreground of the panel, Jean cuddling into the figure of Peter, who's saying, You see, Jean? He did murder my twin brother. I knew Henry too well to believe that he could possibly have found that photographer. Carl's caption for the final panel. And when I awoke, I heard more voices, strange and far away. The policeman is saying, Very clever, Mr. Dupree, disguising yourself as Peter Keith, then slowly resuming your actual appearance, a duplicate of your twin brother, Henry. And Mr. Dupree replies, Exactly. I knew it had to be Carl who made that phone call, because Henry and I always had a strict rule against photographers. Jean was courageous enough to play along with my trick. And as we think on that, a tiny caption reveals that this is... The End. Very Tales of the Unexpected off the television. Yes. Very Twilight zone But indeed it was another person who was a human target uh-huh. who disguised himself as someone else yes. in a story called The Human Target. Yes. Yes. And literally was having things thrown at him constantly as a target. Wow. Wow. That was a lot of fun. Not much more to say to it. It was it's a sort of twist I feel I've seen a, a thousand times elsewhere. You know, it was his twin yeah. brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could have loved a twin brother. It's always good fun. I love uh, Ribbon's art, I'll be honest. It's just so... So evocative, and I know you said noirish. Uh, mentioned that earlier on for for the first story, but uh, yeah, that has got this sort of feel to it. And you're right, it is very tales unexpected. It is very Alfred Hitchcock presents. You know, yes, a nice half hour TV drama. Yeah, it's the sort of story that you used to get in these anthology books all the time, sort of stuff. It what it's what mm-hmm. makes them such an enjoyable, satisfying little read. Is that you just get these little short stories that don't outstay their welcome with yeah. an exciting twist in the tale. I enjoyed the globe trotting. Uh, we saw Paris represented by some cobbled streets and London represented by a couple of couple of policemen. That was fun. Yes, I do like it when we can visit other places in these stories. It's quite fun. Yep. Yes. Not that we saw much of them, to be honest, apart no. from a, a Parisian film win, which is the same film win you get anywhere else. But that's a shame fun. we didn't see a, a Parisian library, because that would have been a nice a nice little indulgence. No, it was fun. There's not really much else to say. It was good that Carl got caught out. Yes. The cunning of tricking, of using the flashbulb to distract was pretty awful. That was really mm-hmm. nasty. Yeah, Carl was thoroughly, thoroughly evil. Definitely his uh, evil, evil plots and his self-obsession and obsession with Jean yes. was just a wonderful character trait mm. for a horrible, horrible character. No wonder Jean didn't fancy him. Of course not. Mm. I wonder what happened to him. Did they still have the death penalty in, in Britain in 1954? Would he have been <laughs> extradited? I'm not sure. Yeah, who knows? Did, who knows? did Jean and... Henri Dupree's brother lived happily ever after. Or was poor Jean so traumatised that she that she completely quit show business and did something else with her life? When we write our own DC comic, mm-hmm. we will explain what happened next to Jean, maybe, if we can remember. It'd be really cool, actually, if Carl came back as a proper supervillain because he's got the costume already and, <laughs> and he's got he's got weapons and he's got amazing aim. You know, he could be a proper supervillain. He probably could. Yeah. And Henri Dupree's brother, because yeah. that's what his superhero name would be, because <laughs> we're never going to be told his real name. He could probably fight him or something like that. Maybe, maybe. he could adopt <laughs> he could adopt that human targets costume from the splash panel that of uh, Detective Two Hundred and One. The Dupree brothers, yes, but it's a shame we don't get told his name. But not to worry, listeners. What do you think the other Dupree brothers' name was? Write in and, and let us know, or leave us a, a voicemail saying what you think. So we don't end up here all day. We're going to move on to our final story today, which is from issue sixty-one of a DC comic entitled Gangbusters published on October the 15th, 1957, but reprinted in issue 419 of Detective Comics, if you have that handy and want to be able to read along. Gangbusters. 
very familiar name. I remember a, a Superman family character called Gangbuster who kicked about in the late 80s and early 90s. Jose Delbo, was it? Yeah, I think something it was. like that. Yeah. I remember a brief period when Soups was a little bit befuddled and was dressed up as Gangbuster. That's right. I seem to remember him crop Jerry Ordway using them in a couple of issues of Power of Shazam, but I could be completely wrong. I know Ordway certainly did some of the artwork for those Superman yeah. stories, so yeah. If I'm not completely wrong, mm. I might stick that cover on the socials if I get bored. The Gangbusters comic actually was a spin-off of the Gangbusters radio programme, which yes. was very popular at the time. So that's quite interesting. Um, licensed property and all that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I have no idea what the format of the radio series was of the comic, you know. True crime drama, that's right. what it was. And the comic ran for 67 issues. It's basically an anthology. Interesting. Series. I've only got one issue of it, but yeah. Fun stories. Interesting. Fun gangster crime stories. Yes. Why are we doing issue 61 of Gangbusters, listeners, you're asking? Well, Peter's going to tell you about the cover. So at the top, we have the Gangbusters logo, which is basically the words gang and busters. Mm. It's not the most exciting, no. is it? It doesn't really compare to, say, for example, the Uncanny X-Men or the logo no. for the Timberwolf miniseries. But it is in a bit of a Dutch tilt, which we haven't had in a while. We have a man wearing a turban with a beard standing in a car. He's waving at a crowd as it's driving past. And from behind a curtain, we see a hand holding a gun, pointing it at this man. And the driver's thinking, nobody would suspect that's Detective Perry taking the place of Prince Nargar. And the man in the turban is thinking, Somewhere in this crowd or behind one of those windows, an assassin is lurking. And at the very bottom of the cover, there's a caption that says, Featuring the the human human target. You can't beat the law. So there we go. Another human target, listeners. Let's see how we get on with this then, shall we? I think we'll get on gangbusters. Mm. So, as you would come to expect, we have an opening caption that reads, A dozen times a year I saw Detective Bruce Perry step into the shoes of men marked for sudden death. Why did he do it? How could he face such terrible odds time and time again? These were the facts I must know to tell the true story of the, the human targets. Target. The opening splash, not quite splash, but very large panel image, is very similar to the cover. We see the man in the turban being driven along in an open car, a shadowy figure bearing a gun, an open window is watching. The man in the turban is thinking, got to keep my eyes peeled. In that crowd behind one of those windows up there, my assassin may be lurking. And a man in the car following him is thinking, It's incredible. Detective Perry deliberately faces death without a twinge of fear. How? How does he do it? Now this story is narrated by a gentleman reporter called Randall. Randall's caption for panel two reads, It was after Tim Curran's big championship bout that it all began. As a reporter, I was allowed inside his dressing room. Yep, see Randall. Smoking a pipe? What is it with people smoking in the 50s? Yeah, a lot of it. all over the place. Mm -hmm. Good grief. Randall's wearing a sort of burgundy suit. He has a pipe. There's another guy in a blue suit who's saying... Tim, how do you feel about that crank letter threatening your life if you won the fight tonight? And as this question is asked, Randall is thinking, That's the story I want. For a month, Curran's been threatened with death if he won this bout. And now he has. To which the boxer replies, Forget it, boys. Just like I said. When the room is cleared, I hid for a chance to talk to Curran. Yep. Randall is hiding. At this point, we can't see if it's behind a door or cupboard or anything but he's watching something going on there's a couple of figures including tim's coach another man in a suit someone's getting changed or dressed in front of a, a mirror by the looks of things randall's thinking a detective from the sixth precinct and he's disguising himself as the champ the champ's coach can be heard saying you got nerve perry the champ and i are pretty sure that death threat is serious certain people wanted us to lose this fight bad it hit me like a lightning bolt 
Perry was being a human target for Curran. Perry is replying to the coach in panel one of page two as he says, Well, I'm trained to guard against attacks on human life. Curran isn't, and he breaks off as Randall walks in, saying, Hello, fellows. Sorry to play hide-and-seek, but anything goes for a good story. But I didn't get my story. Not then. Their arguments were too good. Very angry-looking Perry, in disguise as Tim the Boxer, is saying, Randall, this is my job. Not only protecting the champ, but other victims of death threats. If you reveal my operations, it will alert the would-be murderers. Sure, sure, I understand. Let's make a deal. You let me in on your whole play. Then, when you retire or get killed, I print the entire story. Randall looks very much like Bob Mortimer in that panel. <laughs> I'm yeah, very distracted that. by it. Randall's narration for panel three. That's how I met Bruce Perry, the detective now known as the Iceman, because of his steel nerves. Later that evening... Yes, listeners, not only is that another human target, but it's an unexpected revelation that Bobby Drake of the X-Men is a legacy character. <laughs> <laughs> With steel nerves. Yep. Mm -hmm. We see Perry in disguise as the champion, a horrible Barry Allen-style green-checked jacket and trousers, exiting the gymnasium building, thinking, Gotta walk just like the champ. Left shoulder low. Randall lurking in the background in silhouette is thinking... What a job, doubling for men who are threatened. He must have ice water running through his veins. Then he narrates the next caption. Without hesitating for a moment, he headed into the shadows. Yep. It's a low point of view shot here, through Perry's feet, as we see Randall lurking along behind him. Randall is thinking. He's deliberately walking down that side street. He wants to be bait for the killers, to draw them out and end the suspense. And then his caption for the next panel. The moment later it happened, with machine gun speed. Yeah. Great panel here, actually, Perry looking at his reflection in a sporting goods shot window. And a car driving past him is also reflected, and a guy leaning out from the back seat pointing a gun at him. And Perry sees the reflection and says, This is it! Randall's narration for the final panel. The Iceman outmatched a hoodlum Tommy gun with the quickest draw I've ever seen. He drops to the ground, brings out his own gun with a rat-a-tap, fires back at the gun we can see in the background. And all the bullet holes in the shot window, tremendous. First panel of page three is narrated by Randall. I knew I had the hottest story in town on my hands. Why did this icy nerve detective willfully live in the shadow of death? I told the precinct captain about my deal with Perry. And as Randall's going through a filing cabinet, a police captain at the desk behind him says, All right, Randall, we're giving you access to all the story material on Perry you want. But remember, not one word until he retires or dies. Randall replies, Captain, my word is my bond and... Besides, I wouldn't write one word that might harm a man with his courage. The next few panels are also narrated by Randall, as he highlights a few of Perry's previous adventures. For panel two, he says, The Iceman's background was fantastic. Once he had stepped into the shoes of a threatened actor. We see Perry on stage in a wonderful checked waistcoat and blue trousers. Looks like he's bearing a pistol, actually. Stepping back as a sandbag falls from above the stage and strikes the stage floor. And Perry thinks, The stagehand! He's the man who's been after the actor's life. Another time, he had impersonated the mayor himself when a crackpot was bent upon assassination. Yes, we see him on a podium in disguise here, wearing glasses, giving a speech, and we see a hand in the crowd, obviously bearing some kind of explosive and about to throw it. Perry notices this and thinks, an arm, in motion to throw an object. Only a man with Perry's training could have saved the situation. As this homemade hand grenade comes flying in, Perry reaches up and grabs it from thin air, thinking... A homemade bomb, and he throws it off behind the stage in the next panel, thinking, that can be doused in the lake. 
So that's great. She had a lady looking very surprised at this this action. She probably didn't expect the mayor had it in him. Without a doubt, his honour would have died that day had not Perry stepped in in his place. Someone in the crowd observes all this going on and says, A, a bomb! Gosh, what a cool number the mayor is, grabbing the bomb like that! Seize that man, officers! Shouts Perry, pointing at the, the fellow who done it. Looks very seedy and weedy and two policemen grab him. Nice tie, though, and lead him off. Randall's narration continues. My research in Perry finished. I visited him to ask him the key question. Why did he choose this life of cold, calculated courage? And once again, we have another one of those mirrors with the, the little light bulbs around it that actors apparently used to use all the time. Perry has a towel to his face. Maybe he's taking off some makeup. We don't know. Randall is sat again with his pipe in his mouth listening as Perry says, My father was a haunted man, Randall. As a popular police officer, he was hated by the underworld. They swore to get him. And they did. I want to save others from that terrible fear. I understand, Perry. I watched the Iceman prepare for his next assignment. Not a muscle trembled. He was as cool and as confident as though he were going to a costume ball. Nice close-up shot over Perry's shoulder as we see him applying some false facial hair. I'm miming a moustache for the benefit of our YouTube viewers. Perry's saying, Prince Nargar of India arrives this morning and he's going to get a ticker tape reception. Of course... Detectives will flank his car, but in case a shot gets through, Randall says, So you're taking his place because his enemies have marked him for death. And a slow dissolve. Later, I was in the car behind Perry as he played the role of the prince. Yep, this is <laughs> this sort of thing hasn't aged well. <laughs> See Perry standing up, this is basically the image from the cover and from the, the opening big large panel in the front of the car. Perry's waving to the crowds and he's thinking, Every window can conceal an assassin. And then the car behind, Randall is thinking, How does he do it? How can he face death time and time again without a qualm? And in his narration for panel three, The bullet came suddenly, but Perry moved with the same swift reflex I had seen before. Two gunshots rang out. Bang! Bang! Perry drops down, shoving the man next to him to the floor of the car, saying, I spotted him! Down, Governor! Randall runs forward in panel four, saying, Perry! Perry, are you all right? Perry, looking very smart in his turban, points up into the air, saying, Just crease my forehead. Up there. The killer's in the bank building. Third floor window on the left. I helped him to the squad car, marvelling at his cool reaction to near death. Yes, we see the, the nice green police car in the background. It contrasts well with Randall's purple hat. Perry mops his brow, saying, Was anyone hurt? Have they caught him? Take it easy, Perry. They've got the building surrounded and police have gone after him. Let's get you to a hospital. And a slow dissolve. Later, at the hospital... Yes, we see Perry, very smart green pyjamas, in bed with a bandage round his head. There's a very attractive blonde nurse taking a tray away. Watch out for her in a Chekhov's gun-type way. Perry is saying, I have to get back to Judy, Randall. I've assigned myself to it. I'm being depended on. Great gosh, Perry, you don't mean you're going out in another case? Right after what's happened? And some time has passed for the first panel on page five, because Perry's now fully dressed, still has a bandage in his head, and he's bidding farewell to the attractive blonde nurse as he says, Thanks. I'll be all right now, Anne. And as Randall looks on, he thinks, He'll never change. He's devoted his life to facing death. Nothing faces him. He'll never know the feeling of fear. Randall's interminable narration continues in panel two. The doctor insisted that the ice man remain at the hospital three days. When he returned home, I visited him. Yes, as Randall arrives, Perry standing before a blackboard he's been writing on with some chalk. Randall thinks, well, what do you know? Perry actually acts nervous about his next assignment. Yeah, we can see that Perry's written seventh inning, right field mannerisms. That's quite interesting. He's stroking his chin. Perry's saying, 
Uh, just make yourself at home, Randall. I've got to study my schedule for the impersonation of Bill Clark, the ball player. I understand some crackpot fan has threatened to kill him during the seventh inning. This afternoon, Perry. Is something wrong? You're not yourself. Of course I'm all right. What makes you think otherwise? It's just something I ate. My stomach's upset. Leave me alone. I can see there's some more writing on the board. Something that looks like kicks face after each inning. Kicks base after each inning. That's what it says. Not very clear here. Writing is terrible, Mr. Perry. Randall's narration for panel four. Puzzled, I sat down in a corner pretending to read a book. Yeah, the book's open. We can see... Oh, there's a, a little pressed flower and a little note. Very interesting. Could that be signed Anne? It looks like it might be. As Perry contemplates the blackboard, Randall is thinking... He's sweating. Shaky. No doubt about it. It's happened at last. The Iceman is scared. What happened? Why? Then I glanced at a note within the book. It hit me. The one thing that could make Perry no fear had happened. Yes, as Randall reads the note, he thinks... Anne! Why, she's the nurse at the hospital. Of course, that's it. Perry fears facing death now because he's afraid for someone else. He's in love. Yes, the note with the rose says, with all my love, Anne, a slow dissolve then. That afternoon, my pulse raced as I watched Perry take the ball player's position in right field at the seventh inning. Yeah, interesting shot. We can tell it's Randall because the pipe's still sticking out of his <laughs> mouth. Look down onto the baseball field and Randall is thinking. He was great when he knew no fear. But can he protect himself now when he's like the rest of us, frightened? And the point of view shifts. Final panel, page five. Looking down behind Perry, presumably that's him in the number 20 shot. The field playing out in front of him. And Randall's thinking to himself. He's casing the stands now, desperately trying to spot some indication of who the would-be killer might be. But that isn't the old Perry. That's not the Iceman. We arrive at the top of page six. And Randall's narration for the first panel. The first two outs went by without incidents. Then, as an easy fly fell into Perry's glove... The ball drops from Perry's hand, bounces a couple of times in the grass. He's failed to catch it. Randall and the crowd watches us, thinking... That ball was in his glove. A boy could have held on to it. He's actually frantic. The suspense was tremendous. I knew Perry was as helpless against the killer now as you or I. But the next batter struck out, ending the inning. Groundsman walks onto the pitch... If that's what they call it, or the ground, I don't know. I don't know anything about baseball. <laughs> Listeners, do you know anything about baseball? What would you call it? And he's lifting up one of the bases, replacing it with another one. And as he does so, he's saying, Third base bag is in bad shape. Got to peg down a new one. And up in the crowd, Randall thinks, Perry made it. It was a phony threat against right fielder Bill Clark. Whew. But as Perry approached the diamonds... Yeah. See the groundsman looking very suspicious in the foreground as Perry approaches the, the diamond, saying out loud, Got to remember to kick third base as Clark does. Can't let the fans suspect somebody substituting for him because of the threat. Wait a minute. This is odd. Suddenly, 20,000 fans and I saw Clark take off his glove and... Randall thinks... Huh? Clark's throwing down his glove. He must be mad about something. Sure enough, we see Perry hurling his glove at the newly replaced base. Caption for the next panel. Abruptly. There's a massive explosion, massive boom as the base explodes as the glove hits it. Perry cries, the groundsman. Stop the groundsman and put down that bag. Caption for the next panel reads. Afterward, I raced to the dressing room where Park Police had located the crackpot. Yeah, you see, a police officer has got the groundsman by the arm and he's saying. You mean because that bag was put down at the wrong angle, you got wise to him, Perry? That and the fact that it had a peculiar bulge, Collins. Remember. My seventh inning wasn't over till I reached the dugout. I had to be on guard. And we close with some more narration from Randall that reads, So, 
That's my story. After that, there was only one other time I ever saw him really nervous. And a tiny panel to round out. The bald minister can be seen from the back officiating at the wedding of Detective Perry and Anne. And very charmingly, it looks so Randall's his best man. They're all looking very smart in their white tie and tails. Anne looks lovely in her dress. As Randall thinks... <laughs> that wedding ring scares him more than a Tommy gun. And a small caption reads... The end. end. Well, I really quite like that. Very straightforward. Probably the most straightforward of them all that we've done today. Yeah, definitely. And again, it's another person disguised, well, disguising himself as multiple people who are in danger. So yeah, great fun. Yeah, that's the common thread for all of them. I mean, I mean this one's probably the, the easiest one. I can't imagine this being an episode of Tales of the Unexpected. Not quite as <laughs> spooky or twisty as the House of Mystery story. No. Very, very procedural almost in its telling. The shift in emphasis from the narrator gave it a different spin because we weren't, we weren't privy to Perry's thoughts. Yeah. You know, that was quite different from the last one when we were privy to what Carl was thinking. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that Perry was almost a guest star in the story that he was the title yeah, character. Yeah, very in. true. Was, having it told through a third person made it a lot more interesting, yeah, definitely. It might have been an idea to, <laughs> from today's perspective, to have maybe had the baseball image as the cover or the splash panel rather than <laughs> a man wearing a turban and pretending to be someone from another country. I don't know. Yeah, and it's weird that that image was repeated three times between the cover, the splash page, and yeah. the actual event. Yep. That was a bit of a repetitive storytelling. The, the past <laughs> is a different country. They do things differently there, etc. Mm. or another country, etc. No, that was fine. It's, I mean, arguably the most ordinary of them, but, mm-hmm. you know, there was a few bits of sporting imagery through it made it quite different from the other ones. Yeah. You know, Batman crime story and spooky, is it a ghost amongst the, the theatrical spaces in Paris and London? I think it was enough of a variety, and it was actually it was probably the most straightforward one to actually get through. I think, to be honest, yep. even though Perry's handwriting is terrible. Mm-hmm. Now, for these stories, it's been too early before actual letters to appear in letter columns. However, when this story was reprinted in Detective Comics, there were a couple of letters that actually commented on it. Excellent. From Detective Comics issue four hundred and twenty-three, just a couple of wee paragraphs. The first one's from Bob Abrahams from Regio Park, New York. And he said, He thought well of Bruce Perry in The Human Targets. Now, there's a type of one-shot character that's well done. He enjoyed the action, deduction, and character development. And the final letter also comments on it in this page, saying, The repeats were marvellously pertinent to the mag as well, with The Human Target being an especially exciting piece. Interesting. It's... It seems a very bizarre story, a random choice to reprint in Detective Comics 419. I mean, it's like, admittedly, you know, there's, there was a detective type thing going on, but mm-hmm. I thought the House of Mystery one might have fitted in a bit better. I don't know, just because it feels really antique compared to the, the modern approach of Batman at the time. It's yep. very odd. But an interesting story, and I'm glad that Perry got a happy ending. Yep, me too. Hopefully he didn't die on his next mission and <laughs> Anne wasn't made a police widow very, very soon afterwards. Yep. This kind of brings me back full circle to Christopher Chance because that story was reprinted in Detective Comics 419, which came out on the 30th of November 1971, and it was edited by Julie Schwartz. So going back to the stats that David gave you right back at the start of the show, the first appearance of Christopher Chance, Human Target, was in Action Comics, also issue 419, also edited by Julie Schwartz. And that came out on the 26th of October 1972, as we said, just about a year later. So my theory is mm. that Julie actually thought there is mm. you know, something we can do with this human target character. Let's make him an ongoing character. Yes, 
in a prep, Pete made me aware of an interview with Len in issue 10 of Back Issue, where he talked about bringing in the human target and as a sort of revised version of a character he'd done called Johnny Double, who'd appeared in the showcase. It almost sounds like a meeting of minds, doesn't it? Yep, definitely. You know, Julie wanting to increase the in, the mix of backup stories and then seeing this thing reprinting Detective and going, hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I think that's a good idea. That's a great theory. I think that works for me. It's too much of a coincidence. Yeah. Not to be so soon afterwards, something yeah. like that popping up. I think you could be right. Yeah, yeah very much so. This story isn't mentioned in that interview in back issue, issue 10. Right. But as you say, it's too much of a coincidence for it not to be. Yeah. I mean, they even use the same name as the story for crying out loud. I know. I wonder what listeners, <laughs> at the, I wonder what, not listeners, I wonder what readers at the time might have thought. Uh-huh. I wonder if there's a letter in Action Comics of someone saying, Oh, <laughs> did you read Detective a year ago? Is that where that came from? Yep. Again, listeners, a bit of a stretch because none of these were Golden Age superheroes, but it was mm-hmm. an interesting thing to sort of speculate in the origins of this character. It's, yeah. a diff- it's an interesting twist and legacy. Have you enjoyed this twist and legacy? Please let us know. You can email us at the Earth2Podcast at gmail.com or you could even send us a voicemail to tell us your thoughts at speakpipe.com forward slash the Earth2 Podcast. As usual, listeners, be sure to check out the socials. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at the Earth 2 Podcast. On Twitter, we are podcast underscore Earth 2. We'll be putting up the covers and panels of these various stories. I've managed to scrabble together about 50, he exaggerated, foreign reprints of Action Comics 419, (laughs) and I'm not having them go to waste, so they'll pop up on the socials. Just Mm -hmm. how many times was Neil Adams' cover image reused in other territories? A lot. That's Mm -hmm. the answer. So they'll go up in a couple of days, I'm sure, as long as I can maintain the grid structure. If you're feeling especially generous, you go to wherever it is you receive your podcasts and leave us a positive review. If you're feeling even more generous than that, you go to our coffee page and buy Peter the price of a beverage to pay for the editing he's had to do on this and all the other episodes. Oh, that'd be very nice. Very nice. I'm away for a lie down now, actually. Yes, I'm going to go and boil my head. (laughs) On that bombshell that no doubt the human target will catch and throw into a lake. Yes, hopefully no one was swimming past or there weren't any fish or people playing with their dogs or, or sharks. Yeah. From the other story, they yes. escaped into this lake. Yeah. All very exciting stories, I must say. I've enjoyed them all very much. Yes. Anyway. I've been Peter. I've been David. See you next time on The Earth, Earth 2, 2 Podcast. Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. They must have hijacked the real television mobile unit and substituted their own, figuring they could commit the crime before the studio realised why it wasn't getting any reception. My goodness, that's one big sentence, Batman. Yep. First, Moreno the Magician. Next, Tom Baker, Time Lord, Shipbuilder. (laughs) 